and then the great brute launched his massive stone-tipped spear, and I raised my shield to break the force of its terrific velocity. The impact hurled me to my knees, but the shield had deflected the missile, and I was unscathed. Jubal was rushing upon me now with the only remaining weapon that he carried, a murderous-looking knife. He was too close for a careful bow-shot, but I let drive at him as he came, without taking aim. My arrow pierced the fleshy part of his thigh, inflicting a painful but not disabling wound, and then he was upon me. My agility saved me for the instant. I ducked behind his raised arm, and when he wheeled to come at me again, he found a sword's point in his face, and a moment later he felt an inch or two of it in the muscles of his knife-arm, so that thereafter he went more warily. It was a duel of strategy now, the great hairy man maneuvering to get inside my guard, where he could bring those giant thews to play, while my wits were directed to the task of keeping him at arm's length. Thrice he rushed me, and thrice I caught his knife-blow upon my shield. Each time my sword found his body, once penetrating to his lung. He was covered with blood by this time, and the internal hemorrhage induced paroxysms of coughing that brought the red stream through the hideous mouth and nose, covering his face and breast with bloody froth. He was a most unlovely spectacle, but he was far from dead. As the duel continued, I began to gain confidence, for, to be perfectly candid, I had not expected to survive the first rush of that monstrous engine of ungoverned rage and hatred. And I think that Jubal, from utter contempt of me, began to change to a feeling of respect, and then in his primitive mind there evidently loomed the thought that perhaps at last he had met his master and was facing his end. At any rate, it is only upon this hypothesis that I can account for his next act, which was in the nature of a last resort, a sort of forlorn hope, which could only have been born of the belief that if he did not kill me quickly, I should kill him. It happened on the occasion of his fourth charge, when, instead of striking at me with his knife, he dropped that weapon, and, seizing my sword-blade in both his hands, wrenched the weapon from my grasp as easily as from a babe. Flinging it far to one side, he stood motionless for just an instant, glaring into my face with such a horrid leer of malignant triumph as to almost unnerve me. Then he sprang for me with his bare hands but it was Jubal's day to learn new methods of warfare. For the first time he had seen a bow and arrows. Never before that duel had he beheld a sword, and now he learned what a man who knows may do with his bare fists. As he came for me, like a great bear, I ducked again beneath his outstretched arm, and as I came up, planted as clean a blow upon his jaw as ever you have seen. Down went that great mountain of flesh sprawling upon the ground. He was so surprised and dazed that he lay there for several seconds before he made any attempt to rise, and I stood over him with another dose ready when he should gain his knees. Up he came at last, almost roaring in his rage and mortification, but he didn't stay up. I let him have a left fair on the point of the jaw that sent him tumbling over on his back. By this time I think Jubal had gone mad with hate, for no sane man would have come back for more as many times as he did. Time after time I bowled him over as fast as he could stagger up, until toward the last he lay longer on the ground between blows, and each time came up weaker than before. He was bleeding very profusely now from the wound in his lungs, and presently a terrific blow over the heart sent him reeling heavily to the ground, where he lay very still, and somehow I knew at once that Jubal the Ugly One would never get up again. But even as I looked upon that massive body lying there so grim and terrible in death, I could not believe that I, single-handed, had bested this slayer of fearful beasts, this gigantic ogre of the Stone Age. Picking up my sword, I leaned upon it, looking down on the dead body of my foeman, and as I thought of the battle I had just fought and won, a great idea was born in my brain. The outcome of this, and the suggestion that Perry had made within the city of Futra. If skill and science could render a comparative pygmy 
the master of this mighty brute, what could not the brute's fellows accomplish with the same skill and science? Why, all Pellucidar would be at their feet, and I would be their king, and Diane their queen. Diane. A little wave of doubt swept over me. It was quite within the possibilities of Diane to look down upon me even were I king. She was quite the most superior person I had ever met, with the most convincing way of letting you know that she was superior. While I could go up to the cave and tell her that I had killed Jubal, and then she might feel more kindly toward me, since I had freed her of her tormentor. I hoped that she had found the cave easily. It would be terrible had I lost her again, and I turned to gather up my shield and bow to hurry after her, when to my astonishment I found her standing not ten paces behind me. "'Girl!' I cried. "'What are you doing here? I thought that you had gone to the cave as I told you to do.' Up went her head, and the look that she gave me took all the majesty out of me and left me feeling more like the palace janitor, if palaces have janitors. "'As you told me to do,' she cried, stamping her little foot. "'I do as I please. I am the daughter of a king, and furthermore I hate you.' I was dumbfounded. This was my thanks for saving her from Jubal. I turned and looked at the corpse. "'Maybe that I saved you from a worse fate, old man,' I said. But I guess it was lost on Diane, for she never seemed to notice it at all. "'Let us go to my cave,' I said. I am tired and hungry. She followed along a pace behind me, neither of us speaking. I was too angry, and she evidently didn't care to converse with the lower orders. I was mad all the way through, as I had certainly felt that at least a word of thanks should have rewarded me, for I knew that even by her own standards I must have done a very wonderful thing to have killed the redoubtable Jubal in a hand-to-hand -hand encounter. We had no difficulty in finding my lair, and then I went down into the valley and bowled over a small antelope, which I dragged up the steep ascent to the ledge before the door. Here we ate in silence. Occasionally I glanced at her, thinking that the sight of her tearing at raw flesh with her hands and teeth like some wild animal would cause a revulsion of my sentiments toward her, but to my surprise I found that she ate quite as daintily as the most civilized woman of my acquaintance and I finally found myself gazing in foolish rapture at the beauties of her strong white teeth. Such is love. After our repast we went down to the river together and bathed our hands and faces, and then after drinking our fill went back to the cave. Without a word I crawled into the farthest corner, and, curling up, was soon asleep. When I awoke I found Diane sitting in the doorway looking out across the valley. As I came out she moved to one side to let me pass, but she had no word for me. I wanted to hate her, but I couldn't. Every time I looked at her, something came up in my throat, so that I nearly choked. I had never been in love before, but I did not need any aid in diagnosing my case. I certainly had it, and had it bad. God, how I loved that beautiful, disdainful, tantalizing, prehistoric girl. After we had eaten again, I asked Diane if she intended returning to her tribe now that Jubal was dead, but she shook her head sadly, and said that she did not dare, for there was still Jubal's brother to be considered, his oldest brother. What has he to do with it, I asked. Does he too want you, or has the option on you become a family heirloom, to be passed down from generation to generation? She was not quite sure as to what I meant. It is probable, she said, that they all will want revenge for the death of Jubal. There are seven of them, seven terrible men. Someone may have to kill them all if I am to return to my people. It began to look as though I had assumed a contract much too large for me, about seven sizes, in fact. Had Jubal any cousins? I asked. It was just as well to know the worst at once. Yes, replied Diane, but they don't count. They all have mates. Jubal's brothers have no mates because Jubal could get none for himself. 
He was so ugly that women ran away from him. Some have even thrown themselves from the cliffs of Amoz into the Dar el Az rather than mate with the ugly one. But what had that to do with his brothers? I asked. I forget that you are not a Pellucidar, said Diane, with a look of pity mixed with contempt, and the contempt seemed to be laid on a little thicker than the circumstance warranted, as though to make quite certain that I shouldn't overlook it. You see, she continued, a younger brother may not take a mate until all his older brothers have done so, unless the older brother waives his prerogative, which Jubal would not do, knowing that as long as he kept them single, they would be all the keener in aiding him to secure a mate. Noticing that Diane was becoming more communicative, I began to entertain hopes that she might be warming up toward me a bit, although upon what slender thread I hung my hopes I soon discovered. As you dare not return to Amos, I ventured, what is to become of you since you cannot be happy here with me, hating me as you do? I shall have to put up with you, she replied coldly, until you see fit to go elsewhere and leave me in peace. Then I shall get along very well alone. I looked at her in utter amazement. It seemed incredible that even a prehistoric woman could be so cold and heartless and ungrateful. Then I arose. I shall leave you now, I said haughtily. I have had quite enough of your ingratitude and your insults. And then I turned and strode majestically down toward the valley. I had taken a hundred steps in absolute silence, and then Diane spoke. I hate you, she shouted, and her voice broke in rage, I thought. I was absolutely miserable, but I hadn't gone too far when I began to realize that I couldn't leave her alone there without protection, to hunt her own food amid the dangers of that savage world. She might hate me and revile me, and heap indignity after indignity upon me, as she already had, until I should have hated her. But the pitiful fact remained that I loved her and I couldn't leave her there alone. The more I thought about it, the madder I got, so that by the time I reached the valley I was furious, and the result of it was that I turned right around and went up that cliff again as fast as I had come down. I saw that Diane had left the ledge and gone within the cave, but I bolted right in after her. She was lying upon her face on the pile of grasses I had gathered for her bed. When she heard me enter, she sprang to her feet like a tigress. I hate you, she cried. Coming from the brilliant light of the noonday sun into the semi-darkness of the cave, I could not see her features, and I was rather glad, for I disliked to think of the hate that I should have read there. I never said a word to her at first. I just strode across the cave and grasped her by the wrists, and when she struggled I put my arm around her so as to pinion her hands to her sides. She fought like a tigress, but I took my free hand and pushed her head back. I imagined that I had suddenly turned brute, that I had gone back a thousand million years and was again a veritable caveman taking my mate by force, and then I kissed that beautiful mouth again and again. Diane, I cried, shaking her roughly, I love you. Can't you understand that I love you? That I love you better than all else in this world or my own? That I am going to have you? That love like mine cannot be denied? I noticed that she lay very still in my arms now, and as my eyes became accustomed to the light I saw that she was smiling, a very contented, happy smile. I was thunderstruck, then I realized that very gently she was trying to disengage her arms, and I loosened my grip upon them so that she could do so. Slowly they came up and stole about my neck, and then she drew my lips down to hers once more and held them there for a long time. At last she spoke. Why didn't you do this at first, David? I've been waiting for so long. What? I cried. You said that you hated me. Did you expect me to run into your arms and say that I loved you before I knew that you loved me? She asked. But I have told you right along that I love you, I said. Love speaks in acts, she replied. 
You could have made your mouth say what you wished it to say, but just now when you came and took me in your arms, your heart spoke to mine in the language that a woman's heart understands. What a silly man you are, David. Then you haven't hated me at all, Diane? I asked. I have loved you always, she whispered. From the moment that I saw you, although I did not know it until that time you struck down Huja the Sly One, and then spurned me. But I didn't spurn you, dear, I cried. I didn't know your ways. I doubt if I do now. It seems incredible that you could have reviled me so, and yet have cared for me all the time. You might have known, she said, when I did not run away from you, that it was not hate which chained me to you. While you were battling with Jubal, I could have run to the edge of the forest, and when I learned the outcome of the combat, it would have been a simple thing to have eluded you and returned to my own people. But Jubal's brothers and cousins, I reminded her, how about them? She smiled and hid her face on my shoulder. I had to tell you something, David, she whispered. I must needs have some excuse for remaining near you. You little sinner, I exclaimed, and you have caused me all this anguish for nothing. I have suffered even more, she answered simply, for I thought that you did not love me and I was helpless. I couldn't come to you and demand that my love be returned, as you have just come to me. Just now when you went away, hope went with you. I was wretched, terrified, miserable, and my heart was breaking. I wept, and I have not done that before since my mother died. And now I saw that there was the moisture of tears about her eyes. It was near to making me cry myself when I thought of all that poor child had been through, motherless and unprotected, hunted across a savage primeval world by that hideous brute of a man, exposed to the attacks of the countless fearsome denizens of its mountains, its plains, and its jungles. It was a miracle that she had survived at all. To me it was a revelation of the things my early forebears must have endured that the human race of the outer crust must survive. It made me very proud to think that I had won the love of such a woman. Of course she couldn't read or write. There was nothing cultured or refined about her as you judge culture and refinement. But she was the essence of all that is best in woman, for she was good and brave and noble and virtuous. And she was all these things in spite of the fact that their observance entailed suffering and danger and possible death. How much easier it would have been to have gone to Jubal in the first place. She would have been his lawful mate. She would have been queen in her own land, and it meant just as much to the cave woman to be a queen in the Stone Age as it does to the woman of today to be a queen now. It's all comparative glory any way you look at it, and if there were only half-naked savages on the outer crust today you'd find that it would be considerable glory to be the wife of a Dahomey chief. I couldn't help but compare Diane's action with that of a splendid young woman I had known in New York. I mean splendid to look at and talk to. She had been head over heels in love with a chum of mine, a clean, manly chap, but she had married a broken-down, disreputable old debauchee because he was a count in some dinky little European principality that was not even accorded a distinctive color by Rand McNally. Yes, I was mighty proud of Diane. After a time we decided to set out for Sarry, as I was anxious to see Perry, and to know that all was right with him. I had told Diane about our plan of emancipating the human race of Pellucidar, and she was fairly wild over it. She said that if Dakor, her brother, would only return, he could easily be king of Amos, and that then he and Gak could form an alliance. That would give us a flying start, for the Sarians and the Amosites were both very powerful tribes. Once they had been armed with swords and bows and arrows, and trained in their use, we were confident that they could overcome any tribe that seemed disinclined to join the great army of federated states with which we were planning to march upon the Mahars. 
I explained the various destructive engines of war which Perry and I could construct after a little experimentation, gunpowder, rifles, cannon, and the like, and Diane would clap her hands and throw her arms about my neck and tell me what a wonderful thing I was. She was beginning to think that I was omnipotent, although I really hadn't done anything but talk. But that is the way with women when they love. Perry used to say that if a fellow was one-tenth as remarkable as his wife or mother thought him, he would have the world by the tail with the downhill drag. The first time we started for Sari, I stepped into a nest of poisonous vipers before we reached the valley. A little fellow stung me on the ankle, and Diane made me come back to the cave. She said that I mustn't exercise, or it might prove fatal. If it had been a full-grown snake that struck me, she said, I wouldn't have moved a single pace from the nest. I'd have died in my tracks, so virulent as the poison. As it was, I must have been laid up for quite a while, though Diane's poultices of herbs and leaves finally reduced the swelling and drew out the poison. The episode proved most fortunate, however, as it gave me an idea which added a thousandfold to the value of my arrows as missiles of offense and defense. As soon as I was able to be about again, I sought out some adult vipers of the species which had stung me, and having killed them I extracted their virus, smearing it upon the tips of several arrows. Later I shot a hyenodon with one of these, and though my arrow inflicted but a superficial flesh wound, the beast crumpled in death almost immediately after he was hit. We now set out once more for the land of the Sarians, and it was with feelings of sincere regret that we bade good-bye to our beautiful Garden of Eden, in the comparative peace and harmony of which we had lived the happiest moments of our lives. How long we had been there, I did not know, for as I have told you, time had ceased to exist for me beneath that eternal noonday sun. It may have been an hour or a month of earthly time. I do not know. End of chapter 14